Yesterday on the church calendar was the Feast of the Holy Innocents, the day on which the church annually remembers the slaughter of all those babies in Bethlehem. There probably weren't that many executed by the soldiers. Bethlehem was, was a small village, and even with the environs, how many children, how many male children might there have been three years old and under? Uh, maybe 20, maybe 25. Uh, probably the number killed by Herod's soldiers would be about the same as the number of lives lost in the elementary school a year ago, Sandy Hook in Connecticut, where ten, 20 children and six teachers were, were shot by a gunman. That event, just one year ago, December 12th, is, is nearly lost in our memories already. It's already been overwhelmed by, by other terrible news, by other tragic stories. And probably in a few years, it will only be family members and close friends who remember what happened in Sandy Hook, December 2012. But on the other hand, because of its connection with, with Christmas, the story of the slaughter of the babies in Bethlehem is held closely by the church. Uh, we keep it in our collective memory, especially in churches that, that follow the, the church calendar. But what, what are we to make of this story? Uh, some person said it, 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 it shouldn't be read in church. It's too gruesome. It's, it's, it's too awful. What are we to make of it? Well, why it happened is, is an easy question to answer. The answer is to be found in the mind and heart of King Herod. Herod was paranoid. Essentially, he was a psychopath. Uh, he murdered his first wife. And then to top it off, he murdered her mother. He killed at least three of his own sons because he was afraid that they might take power from him. When he was first appointed to the office of king of the Jews, he began to, to remove members of the Sanhedrin. They disappeared. At one point, he got angry, and he ordered the death of 300 court officials. He was on the throne because of his connection to the Roman Empire. He was a great friend of Mark Anthony. They fought in battles together. And finally, when Mark Anthony was defeated and died, he went to Octavius, who became Caesar Augustus, and talked himself back into being the king of the Jews. But he was afraid of anything that might upset that balance of power. And the birth of one who might be the Messiah would have been and felt like an enormous threat to Herod. He wasn't even Jewish. He was an Arab. And the Jews hated him, and he knew it. So this news that a Messiah was born was very frightening to him. So he had a plan. He found out when they first saw the star, he did the math, and he ordered the death of all males in Bethlehem under two years old and under. So basically, essentially, that would be like three years old and under. And what would be the death of two dozen infants to a man who had ordered the death of his own family members and 300 court officials? But there was something else going on in that story, something that we find explained in the book of Revelation in the 12th chapter, where we see a pregnant woman, and she's confronted by, by a great dragon, 
intent on the destruction of the child. This is a woodcut from Luther's Bible where you see the woman and you see the dragon with his multiple heads and the dragon is ready to seize and destroy the child as soon as it's born. We hear this from Revelation. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour the child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule the nations with an iron scepter. It's obviously a reference to Jesus. See, there was this great cosmic battle going on 2,000 years ago, and Herod was simply a pawn in the hands of Satan, just as he was a pawn in the hands of the Roman Empire. And the several dozen Jewish male infants who were killed in Bethlehem were simply the first casualties of that particular war. Now, now we look at this story with horror or with anger, but our job this morning is to try to figure out what the story looked like to the writer of the Gospels as he started to to describe it. And, And here's where we need to start. This was fulfilled, then was fulfilled what had been spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, wailing in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be consoled because they are no more. Now, when you find a a, a reference like that in the Gospels, it doesn't take you back to one verse in the Old Testament. It takes you back to the whole Old Testament story. We, We heard earlier, as Anna read it, that they, they, they went to Egypt, and it says, thus was fulfilled the verse, out of Egypt I have called my son. Well, as you hear that, you're not to think of just that one verse. You're to think of the whole story of the Exodus and all of its redemptive, saving elements. And that's how the Jews would have heard it as, as Matthew decided. This fulfills the prophecy. They wouldn't have thought of just one event. They would have thought of the whole Exodus. Now, when Jeremiah refers to Rachel weeping for her children, he refers not to just one verse in the book of Jeremiah, but to that whole story. And what we have in that whole story is a bunch of young men and women being taken from Israel as hostages back to Babylon, where they would be held as hostages by Nebuchadnezzar. And as they pass through Ramah, Well, that was the place where Rachel was buried. Rachel was the mater dolorosa of of the Israelites. She was the mother of them all. And and you even see it geographically. She had two sons, remember? She had Joseph and Benjamin. And if you looked at an outline of Israel, the two northern tribes were Manasseh and Ephraim, the sons of, of Joseph. And the southernmost tribe was Benjamin. I mean, her two children basically comprise the country, the nation. She's the mother of the nation. And as she sees the brightest and best of her children, I mean, she's been dead for hundreds and hundreds of years. But in this metaphor, as she sees this humiliation and this tragic event, she weeps. She weeps. So Matthew takes us back to that weeping and says, this is a continuation of that. This is the ongoing of that. This is the attack upon God's people. And there's there's weeping for this. However, to understand what happens in Bethlehem, we have to look at the rest of the story in Jeremiah 31. Look at the next verse. 
But now this is what the Lord says. Do not weep any longer, for I will reward you, says the Lord. Your children will come back to you from the distant land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, says the Lord. Your children will come back again to their own land. Now, does this imply that the women in Bethlehem should not weep for their lost children? Of course not. Of course not. God knows that we must weep for those we lose, those we love. Jesus validated our grieving when he stood at the tomb of Lazarus and and wept. But we must keep in mind God's ultimate victory, that God wins the battle. Yes, there are casualties in the battle with the enemy, but God wins the battle. Now, we see this through many years of the church being attentive to the feast. And the church has done essentially the same thing with the Feast of the Holy Innocents that it does with the whole Christmas event. It sings about it more than it preaches about it. It works out its, its understanding of the event in song. So we have all these Christmas carols that are, that are working out the, the story of the birth of Jesus. Uh, I'll just give you a, an example. This is a Latin hymn that was uh, translated in 1837. Again, this is the church retelling the story, as wolves attack their helpless prey, so Herod holds his murderous way, and hopes, but oh, he hopes in vain to mingle Jesus with the slain. The cradles flow with infant blood, but God his fury hath withstood. The Lord alone he sought to slay, the Lord alone escapes away. Ye mothers, let no tears be shed, ye Yea, weep not, though your babes be dead, for now they stand around the throne, and Jesus counts them as his own. The Father's name we loudly raise, the Son, the Virgin-born we praise, the Holy Ghost we all adore, one God, both now and evermore. That's how the church has has processed this story. Uh, The bottom line in our perspective of the slaughter of the innocents is that God is in charge. God is the victor. And through him, death becomes the gateway to new life. Our response is to praise him. I I began the service by saying that during Christmas, we remember and we give thanks to God for the miracle of the incarnation, God becoming human and living among us. And for the next few minutes, I'd like to explore with you the result of the incarnation using what we heard from Wendy just a few moments ago from the book of Hebrews. Now, the story of the birth of Jesus is is filled with angelic activity. We just sang about that activity just a moment ago. Uh, Angels announced the the birth of John the Baptist, the birth of Jesus. Uh, Angels announced the birth of Jesus to the shepherds. Uh, Angels spoke to Joseph about the coming of the the soldiers and the, the escape to Egypt. Now, the author of the book of Hebrews would seem to have angels on his mind, The first couple of chapters of the book are pretty much preoccupied with the topic of angels. And and he has a lot to say about these angels, and and for a good reason. Because the people in his day, when he wrote the book, had some peculiar ideas about the future and about the role of angels in the future. Now, we heard that very clearly in the very first verse that that Wendy read, where, where he wrote, Furthermore, It is not 
angels who will control the future world. The Essene community, those keepers, those creators and keepers of the Dead Sea Scroll that have been so valuable to us today in in checking out our our translations of the Old Testament, they, they anticipated that the world would be eventually ruled by Michael the Archangel with a couple of subordinates, one a king and the other a priest. It was basically angels they were looking for to rule the world. The Gnostics, which were probably the dominant philosophical thinking when when he wrote Hebrews, believed that that God was completely immaterial, and and, and we're, of course, material and natural, and, and we are thus evil and God is pure, and there needs to be all of these ladder of angels between us and God who act as intermediaries. In essence, for both the Gnostics and the Essenes, they looked to angels for salvation. And and the point that Hebrews makes is, no, we don't look to angels for our salvation. We look to the Son of God for our salvation. We we look to Jesus Christ. The author of Hebrews counters the argument this way, as he wants us to see that salvation comes through the Son of God, through Jesus Christ. He begins by quoting Psalm 8. Psalm 8 is, is a beautiful hymn, to the beauty of human nature. And, and he extols human nature. He says, the psalmist, we were created just a little bit lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor, and everything is under our authority. He quotes it this way. He says, yet you made them only a little lower than the angels, crowned them with glory and honor. You gave them authority over all things. Now when it says all things... It means nothing is left out. But we have not yet seen all things put under their authority. He's arguing that basically life isn't the way it's described in Psalm 8. We are not what we were created to be. We are not living the way we were meant to live. We have exchanged our glory and our honor and our authority for what we deemed as human beings to be freedom and self-actualization, to be in charge, to be in control, to make our own destiny. Through disobedience made by Adam and Eve, humanity decided to take control of its own destiny. But that didn't turn out so well, did it? In, in, In short, we exchanged the beauty of what we were meant to be for the decay of sin and, and the human tragedies that are associated with that decay. As one person put it, his name is Josh Billings, uh, man was created a little lower than the angels and has been getting a little lower ever since. Uh, Josh Billings was not his real name. His, his real name was Henry Wheeler Shaw, and he was a humorist. Uh, he was the, the, the second favorite humorist to Mark Twain. You notice that humor back in those days was a little more classy, maybe, than some of our humor today. But he had the point right. God meant for us to be one thing, and we've been messing it up since Adam and Eve. So that's the first point that the writer of Hebrews makes. We aren't what we were meant to be. Now, having established that, he paints a couple of portraits of the Incarnation. 
showing us what God accomplished through the Incarnation, that which we remember and for that which we give thanks at Christmas. We don't see the glory in our lives that we're created for, but he says we do see Jesus. Look at verse 9. What we do see is Jesus, who was given a position a little lower than the angels. And because he suffered death for us, he is now crowned with glory and honor. Yet by God's grace, Jesus tasted death for everyone. Notice how carefully the writer of Hebrews is using the language of Psalm 8, which was written about people, to describe Jesus. He basically makes three points. It's rather Socratic. He, he says, uh, humans were made a little bit lower than the angels. Jesus Christ was made a little bit lower than the angels. Therefore, Jesus Christ is human. He took on our nature. He became flesh and blood like us. So what do we see in the incarnation? We see Jesus, and he is the ideal man. Jesus embodies what we were meant to be in the original creation as the God-man. I'm not talking about Jesus as only divine. Jesus as the God-man, fully human, fully divine, embodies what we were meant to be in the original template of creation. He is crowned now with glory and honor as we were meant to be. But of course, you see, we traded, we, through Adam and Eve, traded that crown for a lie. What was the lie? Oh, come on, you'll be like God if you do this. Well, of course, the opposite has happened. It's the ultimate lie. Now, to say that Jesus is the ideal man might sound a bit Confusing, I'll use that word. Because you might look at it and say, oh, Jesus is my ultimate role model. For me to be what I should be, all I have to do is imitate Jesus. Well, good luck with that. Uh, I hope you get farther than I would, and that's not very far. Uh, my ability to even imitate a, another good person, like Garvin Pierce, I'm pretty lame at that. Yeah. He's a good man. I mean, how could we ever dream of becoming like Jesus by some process of imitation? We know ourselves too well to ever think that could have. So what does he mean? Well, I, I think the author of Hebrews is inviting us to see that through the incarnation, our lives can be transformed and changed. And God can remake us so that we become what he meant us to be originally. That happens through the incarnation. Verse 10, God, for whom and through whom everything was made, chose to bring many children into glory. And it was only right that he should make Jesus, through his suffering, a perfect leader to bring them into their salvation. Through Jesus, God brings us back to that glory that we were originally created to have. Jesus, through his incarnation, will transform us and bring us and restore us to what we ought to be. That's why he became human, that he might transform us. That's God's plan through Jesus to bring us back to the glory that was ours according to the plan of creation. 
And for reasons that we will not discuss today because we won't have time to even begin the topic, for reasons that maybe we can't even really understand, it was absolutely necessary for Jesus to suffer and die in order for that to happen. It was the only way. I don't know why, but it is. Now, the author of Hebrews is not quite done at this point. He's like one of those commercials you see on TV, which I was watching a couple of when we were in Binsgarth at Christmas, and, and you know, where they say, look, look at this great device, you know, that chops and slices and dices. But wait! What's next? Order now, and you will get two for the price of one. Well, no, the Hebrews is not done. He says that through the Christmas miracle, the incarnation, Christ defeats the devil. Remember the devil? We saw him earlier in, as we considered the feast of, of the innocents, the holy innocents. We saw him trying to destroy Jesus. And, and we see him doing that throughout the life of Jesus, either trying to destroy Jesus, to derail Jesus, to handicap Jesus. He was the enemy of Jesus. He was posed, prepared, and doing his best to destroy the one who was created to be the ultimate ruler. Using Herod as his tool, he, he tried to kill Jesus. But he failed. And for him, for the devil, that was bad news. Because the consequence of the incarnation is the devil loses. You follow this line in Hebrews, verse 14. Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood, for only as a human being could he die. He couldn't die as God. And, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Just think of all the ways that Satan tried to thwart the mission of Jesus. The slaughter of the innocents was just the first. And in every one of those, Satan failed. He had Jesus nailed to a cross and killed. But even then, he failed because he lost. The last verse of Revelation sums it up. Revelation chapter 12, I'm sorry, where it talks about the woman and the dragon. Chapter 12, verse 17. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman because she had escaped and the baby had escaped and went off to wage war against the rest of his offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. Satan's lost. But he's still fighting. Who does he fight? Us. He's still waging war against us. Christ's followers. Christ's offsprings, if you will. He is the first fruit. We are the rest. He's still waging war against us. But yet, this much has changed. He's been robbed of the power of death. We sing in the carol, good Christian men rejoice. Now you need not fear the grave. Peace, peace, Jesus Christ was born to save. We don't have to fear death anymore. Wendy and I stood for a very long time yesterday at the casket of, of one of the most remarkable men that I think we've ever had the privilege of knowing. A, a good friend. He was a good friend to scores of people. There aren't many people in the world who are created with the capacity to befriend that many people, but he had it. He was 
probably one of the best professors to ever teach at the University of Manitoba. Uh, and he was a, a deeply, deeply committed man of God, a pillar of his church. He passed away just a couple of days after his 55th birthday. And there were tears. There were a lot of tears. And, and my eyes almost tear up now. But yet as we stood around that open casket with that body that had been ravaged and emaciated by cancer, there was something like joy. Because the power of death has been broken. And we know that our separation from this friend, this father, this husband, is only temporary. Only temporary. And when there is the reunion of, of people who have been resurrected from the dead and the new heaven and the new earth, that separation will only seem like a brief moment. You see, in the Incarnation, Jesus Christ came to die. And in dying, has taken away the power of death. So Jesus has come to transform us, to make us into the people we were originally created to be. We messed it up by sin. We still mess things up by sin. And Jesus is still able to transform us and ready and willing to transform us as we allow him to. And he's come to defeat death, to give us life. You see, as we saw with the slaughter of the holy innocents, in the hands of God, death is the gateway to life. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord, we, we, we think about the incarnation, we talk about it, we sing about it, and yet we barely understand it. We barely understand what it means for the eternal creator of the universe to become human. Some analogies and metaphors help us, but it's still almost incomprehensible. And to understand why you had to die, Lord, is, is even more difficult. But I think we're smart enough to not try to understand things that we can't understand. I think we're smart enough to accept them by faith, at face value, and to give you thanks and praise, Lord, for becoming flesh and blood, for becoming human and dying for us, that we might become sons of God, restored to what we were meant to be, in essence, to become like you by the power of your Holy Spirit working in us, Thank you, Jesus. And thank you for defeating the devil, that one who tried to kill you at the beginning of this incarnation event. Thank you. Thank you for, in defeating him, for giving us the ability to stand by a casket with hope, to face our own mortality with hope and confidence in you. Thank you, Jesus. We thank you and praise you. Amen.